Well, good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. It is so nice to see all of your smiling faces. And if you guys could just find your seats, that'd be wonderful. Thank you so much. We'll have a time of fellowship after the service. We'll continue this wonderful fellowship in the spirit. This morning we pick up with uh, part two. I don't like to do two-part messages because not everyone's there for part one or part two, and it's difficult and challenging to sort of pick up where we left off, but I'm going to do my best. Uh, What I do know is that uh, this is a very powerful portion of Scripture. Unfortunately, it's also a lengthy chapter, so we went through the first part of what was a study on telling the truth, telling the truth. Uh, And just to recap, we saw that when Stephen was taken into custody, Uh, He was addressing the Sanhedrin, and he responded to a question uh, that the Sanhedrin asked him. The high priest asked him, are these charges against you true? And as I pointed out last week, rather than defend himself against false charges, he preached the truth. I want you to say amen. amen. Rather than defend himself against false charges or fake news, he did what? He preached the truth. And that is what we need to do. You see, the enemy wants to get you distracted and get you caught up in defending yourself and your words when, in fact, the truth is the truth. The truth is more powerful than any defense that you can make of false charges. So I encourage you not to get into defending false charges against you, but rather preach the truth. He did a few things. He, first of all, in preaching the truth, he recounted God's promise to Abraham. And after talking about that, he then recounted God's faithfulness to Joseph. And then he recounted God's deliverance through Moses. But then he started to do something a little dangerous. He was preaching truth to power. He preached the truth of their history as the Israelites rejected and refused to obey Moses. That was the setup for what comes next. Because what comes next can oftentimes be interpreted as something other than love. But I want to remind you that truth, telling the truth, is loving people. That's no excuse to be nasty or mean or inappropriate or rude, but telling the truth, which is what we talked about last week and continue to speak about today, is loving. But remember, love can sometimes be tough. It needs to get tough. And sometimes the truth hurts. I always tell people, you know, if, 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 and I use a comical example, but, but if my fly was open, I would hope you'd love me enough to tell me the truth. Don't let me go through the whole service and then afterwards send me an email on Monday morning, oh, Pastor Tim, I just want to let you know your fly was open. That's not love. Now, I use a comical example, but the reason I say this is because most people don't want to hear the truth. I want to hear the truth. You want to hear the truth? Say Amen. Well, the world does not want to hear the truth because the truth hurts. We as Christians oftentimes tell ourselves, well, we can't tell them the truth, but we need to tell them the truth. And you're going to see that what Stephen does next is the most loving thing Stephen could do for these people. It doesn't seem like it when you first look at it and you listen to the words. But remember, telling the truth is sometimes very difficult for people to hear and the truth hurts. But I want us to today, in our second portion of this study, to think about, as we did last week, telling the truth, I want you to think about the fact that we are to love people with the truth. 
Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would fill us with your love, the power of your spirit, but give us your truth. The word is truth. Your word is truth. You are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by you. It's a difficult truth to preach to a Christ-rejecting world, but an important one. Lord, give us the strength and the love to be able to lovingly point out sin, to be able to lovingly tell the truth about the darkness in this world and the wickedness that's being promoted as acceptance and tolerance. Oh, Lord God, help us to lovingly love people with that truth that so often convicts and so often changes lives, and may I say, for the better. Oh, Lord God, we need the power of your Spirit. Your Word is truth. He is the Spirit of truth. And we need to live in the truth. We need to live in the light. And Lord God, we ask that today's study would so empower us that we would not be fearful, but rather that we would say like Paul did in Ephesians, give me the boldness that I ought to have that I might speak the way you've called me to speak. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So we pick it up in verse 51, and and, and here in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, in verse 51, something very interesting begins to happen. Stephen makes it personal. Are you afraid to get personal? I think a lot of times, pastors do this, I know I've been guilty of it at times, we speak in generalities, You you know, people who... Or that group of people, we don't like to get specific. I I think if you've been listening or you've been here for the last year, you know I have no problem calling people out. Getting specific, identifying individuals, becoming personal, not only in your sharing of the truth, but in speaking truth to others, being personal. Personable, yes, but personal. Making it personal means that you're going to have to say some things that are difficult for others to hear and challenging for you to speak. Look what happens in verses 51 through 53 after Stephen has done this wonderful recounting of Scripture and God's faithfulness to Israel and how Israel was oftentimes, more often than not, not faithful to God. Here's what he says. And this, I I feel badly because I had to do that recap because if you just jump in at verse 51, it sounds like Stephen is a, a very, very difficult person to deal with. But he's not. I want you to imagine as he speaks these words, how his face was described. And we talked about it last week when his face was described as that of an angel. Remember that as Stephen speaks these difficult truths, even the Sanhedrin testified that they looked intently at him back in chapter 6, verse 15. And it says, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Is it possible to be loving and smiling and preach such difficult truths? Yes. Jesus is our wonderful example. Amen? So here's what he says. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you, who have received the law that was put into effect through angels or messengers, but have not obeyed it. He went there. You know, I've had some people who listen online contact me, and and it's all positive feedback, which is pretty amazing. I expect it otherwise. Uh, Say, boy, you, you, you really, you're going there. Yeah, I'm going there. Why? Because we have to. It has to be loving, but it has to be truthful to be impactful. We have to call out sin in our culture. 
We have to call out sin in our nation's leadership. We, we need to be able to say, this is wrong. It is not in accordance with God's word. And we do that in a loving way. May our faces look like angels, but our speak, speech be that of God speaking through us. It must be this way. It is because we have not been this way in the church of Jesus Christ that the culture has gotten so out of control. Listen, the darkness in our culture isn't a sign of the culture. It's a sign of the church not affecting change in the culture. I mentioned this, I believe it was last week, we talked about the great awakenings in our country and how it was the church that affected change in the culture bringing about first in the first great awakening, bringing about the American Revolution, which brought freedom to our shores. And then in the second great awakening, the abolishment of slavery. Again, freedom to our shores. I believe we're in the midst of a third great awakening. What will come? I don't know exactly, but I know there are many things that we need freedom from. And the freedom that we want is the freedom that we have in Christ to be preached to the world that all may know him, serve him. And that is what will change our culture and bring light to our shores. So what did Stephen do? The most difficult thing, I think, is to preach truth to someone you care about. Make no mistake about it, Stephen loved these people. He wouldn't have bothered if he didn't. But he responds to them. And he responds to the high priest's question finally by rebuking the Sanhedrin. You know, rebuking is love. Correcting is love. If you don't love your children enough to correct them, you don't love them. You have to correct them. And it's not always easy, and it's oftentimes difficult, and and many times you don't enjoy it, and it would be easier to just let it go. But if you do that, then, then you're not being the parent that God has called you to be. So here's what Stephen does out of love. He rejects, or excuse me, he rebukes those that rejected Jesus. Now, like the, the, their ancestors, the Jews were stiff-necked people, and they had fleshly hearts and fleshly ears. That meant they were very fleshly people. They were stubborn and unwilling to change. And that often describes those that reject Christ. And they were guilty, as Stephen says, of always rejecting God the Spirit, just as they had rejected the words of Jesus. They were guilty of persecuting the prophets and murdering those who predicted the coming Messiah. The Old Testament is replete with examples of this. When they didn't like the truth, they would kill the messenger. And they were now guilty of betraying and murdering Jesus Christ, the righteous one himself. And if someone didn't tell them, they were doomed to hell for eternity. They have just been given an opportunity to repent. But it had to start with the truth about sin and judgment. It had to start with a truth that exposes a person's sin and rejection of God. If we don't start there, we're just entertaining people with itching ears. I know it's not a fun thing to tell people that certain things are sin and sinful lifestyles are not the kind of things that please God, not a lifestyle that pleases God. It's not easy to say. That'll be easier to be quiet, but we just don't have, as Christians, the luxury of doing anything but, as Stephen did, preach the truth in love. It's what we're called to do. It's what Christ did. It's what got him killed, and we'll see that Stephen suffered the same fate. They had received, these Jews had received the law of Moses through God's messengers, but they had chosen not to obey it. So where there is disobedience to God's word, Christians need to share the truth in love. 
I'm going to repeat that because that is really what we want to come away from this study this morning, remembering. Where there is disobedience to God's word, Christians need to speak the truth in love. Well, you can imagine how they responded to this. Look at verses 54 through 56 in chapter 7 in the book of Acts. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. All he was doing was testifying to the truth of the vision he had received. But this did not help his case. He had said things he couldn't unsay, but things that needed to be said. And in saying them, he invoked the fury and rejection of those that had rejected Christ. You see, when the world rejects Christ and they accept you, there's something wrong. Are you with me? If the world rejects Christ and they accept you, there's something wrong. If you are preaching the gospel and living the gospel, they're going to reject you as well. The servant is not above his master. Whose words were those? Jesus's. So, as they reject Christ, expect to be rejected by them. We're shocked and appalled when the world doesn't like us. And yet Jesus told us they will hate you, speak all manner of evil against you. And yet the church is on a mission as a whole in our culture today, and I don't speak of any individual church or denomination, but as a whole, to be liked and to be accepted by the culture. We're not to be liked and accepted by the culture. We're to affect change in the culture by speaking the truth in love. So really, they shouldn't like us very much unless they receive the truth. Now, we're not looking for martyrdom. We're not looking to be persecuted. But brothers and sisters, we are looking to affect change, right? Amen? So here's how Stephen responds to their fury. Notice, uh, the Jews, like their ancestors, were, were furious that someone like Stephen would openly rebuke them. They didn't want to hear it, and they resented the fact that someone like him would say it. But now they're again guilty of rejecting God the Spirit, just as they had rejected the words of Jesus. They're, They're yet again guilty of the thing that he just said. They're making Stephen's case. And during this time, Stephen receives a vision. Now, why did he receive a vision? I can only speculate. But he's about to be ushered into heaven through martyrdom, and God gives him the strength How does he do that? By giving him a vision of heaven. I've often thought that many, if not all, of the martyrs who gave their life for Christ, some of which are depicted on these walls on either side through the stained glass, I've often thought they must have received some type of vision or word from God in order to have endured. I mean, think about it. How do you suffer death at the hands of your enemies and not retaliate. How do, you res- how do you respond in love the way that Christ responded when they put him to death unless you've received a vision or a word from God? And we're given some insight here because Stephen received a vision of heaven. And he testified to this. It was a vision of the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And I imagine at that point he thought to himself, I'm out of here. There was nothing holding him anymore he, he, to this world. He had, he had accepted the truth that God was calling him home and he was ready to go, excited about going. And at that point, 
there was nothing anyone could say or do that would affect his testimony negatively. Because he had seen Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? What do I mean by that? Have you seen Jesus? Have you heard Jesus through his word, through, through this, this wicked world? Have you seen the light of God? Have you heard the voice of the Holy Spirit telling you what to do? As you hear that voice, as you see that light, you will be guided and empowered to speak the truth in love. That's how it works. That's how it happens. Stephen was a man, as we know, known to be full of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowered him to receive this vision. He needed it. He's only a man after all. He's about to be put to death violently. But God knows he needs to receive this vision. He saw the glory of God the Father and Jesus, the Son of God, standing to welcome him into that glory. There's simply nothing more that could have been given to him to have prepared him for what came next. He openly testified to the Jews about this vision that he had received of Jesus, the Son of Man in heaven. And I imagine it sounded something like this. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's just telling the truth. But you know that's not going to help his case, but it's still true. And he shares that truth, openly testifying about the Son of Man in heaven. Now, I want you to think about this with me because we've talked about some of the individuals in the Bible who were persecuted, who suffered, but then were elevated. And that's what happened to Jesus. But going back to Joseph, who we spoke about last week, he was rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery, and then he became the ruler over Israel He became the ruler over Egypt. He became the number one patriarch over his people and the ruler over the Gentiles. So having been rejected and sold into slavery, thrown in a pit, thought dead by his father, he was elevated to be ruler over the world, if you will, at that time. And then you have Moses, who was rejected by the Israelites, but he became ruler over Israel in the wilderness. He became the leader of God's people, right? But he was rejected. And of course, Christ was rejected by the Jews, but he had now become the ruler over all heaven and earth at the throne of God. And that's the testimony of what it means to be rejected by the world, but accepted by God. You will be rejected by them, but accepted by God in heaven and elevated to the highest place at Jesus' side. Amen? So you have to put things in perspective. Of course we tell the truth in love. Because that's our future. That's our destiny. That's our faith. That's our promise. And Stephen was given that truth in a vision. Well, how did the Jews respond to this vision? Well, in verses 57 through 58 we read, At this. So this is the last straw for them. At this they covered their ears. And yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. At this point, sort of an incidental footnote. But we'll see why that's so important later on. What we see here is that they responded to Stephen's testifying of this vision by dragging him out of the city to put him to death by stoning That's the fate he was about to suffer. Now, the Jews, like their ancestors, they refused to hear the truth and were determined to silence Stephen. Brothers and sisters, open up your eyes. As my teachers used to say, put your thinking caps on. 
Why does the world want to silence us, cancel us, deplatform us? Because that is the high-tech way of stopping their ears, covering their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices. You see, what they do now, and they rush at us, of course, just like they did to Stephen, they cover their ears. They do anything they can to stop from hearing the truth. They'll buy the Washington Post. They'll buy the New York Times. They'll control the content of the mainstream or lamestream media. They'll do that. Why? Because what they want to do is not only cover their own ears, they want to cover your ears so you can't hear the truth. I got news for you. The Holy Spirit doesn't need mainstream media to get the truth out there. You know something? He's never really used those platforms. He's always used his people to tell the truth in love. Because, see, a tweet is devoid of love. Even if you put a heart emoji in it, it's not the same thing. The truth must be told in love, and that means it needs to be told personally and personably. It needs to be told with love. You, you can't, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you can't do the same thing online as you can do in person. It's just that true. In fact, I would say that a phone conversation is limited in its effectiveness compared to a face-to-face conversation. Imagine that. I mean, when you think about a phone conversation, at least you have inflection. And you can picture the person's face if you know them. Uh, but then you resort to a, a text message or an email... And unless you flood the thing with emojis, you don't know how the person feels. And and we've gotten so good at texting now, we don't even spell out words. Now, I refuse to do that. U is Y-O-U. I'm sorry, it's not U. R is A-R-E. It's not the letter R. I mean, if you don't have the time to spell a three-letter word... I know this truth to be true. That when we look at people in the eyes and our faces project the love of Christ and we share the truth with them, that's what changes lives. I I don't believe that video blogs and YouTube videos are completely without power, but I just don't think it's as personal as a conversation. That's all I'm saying. So as we think about that, let's remember this. Uh, You and I, we need to understand that God loves us and he loves them. And we need to communicate that love. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are trying to silence that truth because it's so powerful it doesn't need online media. It's so powerful that it doesn't need print media or television. It doesn't need those things. The world was turned, what I would like to say, right side up within the first century without all of those things. And it can happen today, and it does happen. So so here we are worried, oh, they canceled my YouTube account. They canceled my Twitter feed. Good. You know why? Because that's not the best way to reach people anyway. Get out there and love people into the kingdom. Oh, we could never reach the whole world. Really? Really? The whole world can reach the whole world. You can't reach the whole world. You don't need to reach the whole world. How about reaching those that are in your world, in your, in your circle? See, that's what we've gotten away from. We want it to be impersonal. It can't be impersonal. Because if it's impersonal, it's not powerful. So here's what happened. They're trying to silence Stephen. They want to cover their ears. Listen, you know what's great about that? You can cover your ears all you want. God's voice will never be silenced. 
And the word will never return void. You and I, we need to remember that. The power of God's word. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Notice it says, it doesn't even say necessarily reading. It says hearing the word of God. I think we need to put flesh on the word of God. That's why Jesus came in the flesh. He is the word of God, the living word of God. So, they refused to hear it. They were determined to silence Stephen, and they thought they did, but here we are, 2,000 years later, reading Stephen's testimony, right? Was Stephen silenced? Was Stephen silenced? No. So what are you worried about? Let Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter have their day. They're promoting all manner of filth and evil and lies. We brothers and sisters have the truth, and we don't need those things to preach it. Never did, never will. It's more powerful this way anyway. So, they were again guilty of persecuting and murdering those who had predicted the coming Messiah. Once again. Now remember, these are Grecian Jews. Stephen was a Grecian Jew. And these are the Grecian Jews that had a problem, bless you, had a problem with what Stephen was saying. They lied about him. They promoted these false charges against him. They created this situation. But the Grecian Jews stoning Stephen, they they removed their outer clothing and they laid them at the feet of a man named Saul, who features prominently throughout the New Testament, but especially the book of Acts, and of course of his epistles, because his name is Paul, the apostle. At this point, he's Saul of Tarsus, We'll talk a lot about Saul later on, but Saul had heard every word that Stephen spoke to the Sanhedrin. Saul, like the others on the council, they rejected Jesus as Messiah. I've often thought that this entire scenario was God's way of reaching the heart of Saul. Not to mention others who, whom we're not telling, uh, we're not told here, the scripture's not telling us there were others there, but we do know about Saul. There were others as well. What was God doing through the life of this martyred soul, this martyred saint? He was reaching the culture for Christ. See, we look at persecution and even martyrdom, and of course we don't want it, but when it comes, our reaction is all is lost. And yet, if you put your your glasses on enough to see what's going on here in our world today, and then you'll know persecution And even martyrdom is oftentimes what takes place during a great spiritual awakening. Oh, we wouldn't want that. We want to go back to the time when everyone loved Christians and nothing changed in our culture. No, I don't think so. I think it's too late for that. It's time for the world to hear the truth in love. And it's going to cost us something. It costs Christ everything. What it's going to cost you may be your life, maybe your job, it may be relationships. It may be finances, but I promise you that when you enter into heaven and see the glory of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the throne of God, there will be no moment where you say the price was too high to pay. Well, Saul, obviously witnessing all of these things. I I, I believe it says that Saul's a young man, so that we'll know that perhaps he had just recently been appointed to the Sanhedrin. You see, I don't think he was on the Sanhedrin when Jesus was condemned to death. At least it doesn't seem to be true. I think he would have told us. But now a young man named Saul, coming up in the ranks of the Pharisaic traditions, 
He's been appointed to the council. And here he is, a part of this. He's a Hebraic Jew, but he lived among the Greeks. So he can connect with the Grecian Jews. He can connect with the Hebraic Jews. The ideal vessel, by the way, to reach the world for Christ. But at this point, he sees a man so faithful. He didn't see Christ but he, in his martyrdom, in his crucifixion, but he's seeing the first martyr of the Christian church put to death. And it has a lasting impact. And at first, not the impact you would have expected. How did Stephen respond? Uh, this is where the rubber meets the road. How will you respond to similar situations? Well, here's what we read. In verse 59, it says of chapter 7 of the book of Acts, while they were stoning him, so they're throwing rocks at him, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Sound familiar? Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus said it that way. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, that could simply mean they knocked him out and he died. Or it could simply mean that God spared him any further suffering and took him into heaven. I don't know. What's important is that he was faithful to the end. It's a tough scripture because none of us want to experience this or see anyone we love experience this, but... This is what happened to Stephen. And then we read on in the first part of of, of verse uh, 1 in chapter 8. And Saul was there. And Saul was there. Giving approval to his death. How many Sauls are watching you as you're persecuted? As you're spoken about in the way that the world speaks about us as Christians? How many Sauls are waiting to see? Will your face look like a demon or an angel? How will you respond Will you continue to tell the truth in love? Well, Stephen responded to the Jews stoning him, putting him to death by praying for his fellow countrymen. See, the Jews, like their ancestors, were willing to murder a messenger from God. They'd done it before and they would do it again. Stephen openly prayed to Jesus that he might receive his spirit into heaven as he was put to death. And this is sort of why I believe what happened next was Stephen's spirit sort of left his body. I I don't know that for sure, but that's what happened with Jesus. We don't know what happens when a saint is faithful in martyrdom. But I have to believe, and I know to be true, that God is more faithful than we are. Stephen was faithful. I believe God was faithful to Stephen. But regardless... Stephen, like Jesus, openly prayed for those that were putting him to death. He fell on his knees, maybe because he was wounded, but more than likely because he was praying. He cried out in prayer for those that were so filled with hate against him. I'm going to let you in on a little truth that I think you might know, but we probably need to be reminded of. The devil is laying bear traps all around you, hoping that you will step in them and have your legs taken out. And the trap is to get you to become as hate-filled as they are. And if you step in it, you'll lose more than your leg. You'll lose your witness, your testimony, and any power you may have to reach the culture. You and I, we need to not be hateful at all. And when we feel that tendency towards anger and frustration and hostility, when we feel that way about our enemy, whether it be the devil, the world, or Washington, or the progressive left, whatever it is, You and I, we need to remember Stephen. Hate cannot be a part of our language 
And if it's in our hearts, it must be exercised through prayer. Don't step in the trap. The devil's out there laying traps. He's, he's a roaring lion seek, seeking to devour you. And the easiest way you can assist him is to give yourself over to hate. If you act the same way your enemies act, you've already lost. This is where we're failing in many regards as a church. Either we're not telling the truth or we're telling the truth but not in love. I think we need to be reminded of Stephen's testimony. He did not desire that the Lord would judge them for their sins against him. They had sinned against him, not only against God, but against him. He didn't want them to be judged. Do you find yourself saying, I can't wait for the Lord to come back and then he can destroy all my enemies? Or is that just me? His prayers must have made a lasting impression upon young Saul. I believe they did. Saul witnessed the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the, of the Christian church. I mean, Saul had heard every word that Stephen had spoken, and he still rejected Jesus as Messiah. And as we've said, Saul clearly approved of the Jews' decision to stone Stephen to death. And I'm sure that truth haunted him the rest of his life. Saul of Tarsus would, would soon become uh, the defender of Judaism against Christianity and the destroyer of the church. And he would later, as we know, become Paul the Apostle, the messenger of the gospel, and the champion of God's grace. This was the beginning, perhaps not even the very beginning, but at the beginning of his relationship with Jesus. We'll see as we go through our studies that this is just the beginning. There's more to come. But God is beginning to effect change in the heart of Saul. Now, now think about this with me. When did God begin to effect change in your heart? Probably not the day you gave your life to Christ. Probably long before that, if you have a testimony of having rejected Christ. The next thing that happens, and we end with this, you now begin to see that persecution and even martyrdom isn't all bad news. God uses evil for good. Can I hear an amen? See, if you start thinking that things like the results of the last election and the problems we have in our culture are all working against us, then you're like Jacob, who said, all things are against me, but actually all things were working for him. Call me an idealist. Call me an optimist. Actually, call me a Christian. Call me a disciple. I believe God is still in control. Can I hear an amen? Here's what happened. As a result of what happened here, God's will was accomplished in a mighty and powerful way. Let me show you. Just the first three verses of chapter 8. We'll pick it up there next week in verse 4. But for now, on that day, we're told in the latter part of verse 1, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. All is lost. Oh, this is horrible. What happened? I thought God was in control. Did the Holy Spirit go on vacation? What happened? I'll tell you what happened. God was on the move. It's amazing because the death of Stephen marked the beginning of severe persecution in Jerusalem, but this was by God's design. And in other words, God's not the author of evil, but he uses it for good. 
He doesn't author persecution, but when it comes, and he knows it will, he's got a workaround, which was plan A all along. See, Saul, first of all, you have Saul, who had witnessed the stoning of Stephen. That, that's one thing you see God doing. Having approved of the crowd's decision to stone Stephen to death, he heard every word. That's the first thing we see God was doing. But the second may be more subtle. The Jews began to persecute the church at Jerusalem, at Jerusalem, after Stephen's death. Now, why would that take place? Why would God allow that? I want to remind you of what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and in verse 8. And I'll read it for you. This is what Jesus told them would happen or should happen or was going to happen. But you will receive power, he told his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. By the word, in Greek, the word is martyrs. You will be my martyrs, my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. One little problem, they hadn't left Jerusalem. So what did God do? He made it possible that they had no other choice. What has God done in your life when he hasn't given you a choice? You know what I love about when God works that way? I know I'm in God's will. Uh, Your boss comes to you and tells you, well, you know, you have to do this or you have to do that. And it's against your convictions to do this or that. Whether it be a vaccine or whether it be something related to your faith, your boss comes along and says, you have to do this. And you say, I'm sorry, I can't. And you get fired. And you think, well, I have no other choice. These are my convictions. This is what I know to be true. You know in that moment that you're walking in the will of God. And that's what they were doing, walking in the will of God. The Holy Spirit used this persecution to fulfill Jesus' last promise to his disciples. He had given them this promise just before he ascended into heaven and his disciples were pushed out of their comfort zone and into God's perfect will. They were scattered throughout the very places that he had called them to go. Is that coincidence? I don't think so. It's a God incidence. The apostles were the only ones left in Jerusalem after the persecution began. I mean, they had been focused on building a large church within the Jewish capital city. And that was good for a time. I mean, the the church at Jerusalem had grown quite large. And in addition to the 3,000 converts on the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, many others had joined. After Peter's second sermon, the believers numbered 5,000. That's a large church. And they were later called a multitude that multiplied greatly. So you can imagine there's probably tens of thousands of them at this point. But they, as the church had either forgotten or disregarded Jesus' direction to become his witnesses outside of Jerusalem. So the persecution makes that not only possible, but it gives them no other choice. See, here's what I like. The culture coming after my values and giving me no other choice to speak calls me to be like Stephen or John the Baptist or Jesus himself. I don't have any other choice. It's easy to follow God's will in that regard. The culture telling me I have to accept same-sex relationships and, and, and abortion, which is murder, tells me I don't have any other choice but to speak the truth. Oh, Pastor Tim, that's not loving. Oh, yes, it is. It's the truth. There are so many things like this we are called to speak out on and against. 
But godly men came. They buried Stephen. They mourned for him. Despite the Jewish persecution, they were able to bury Stephen. And these may have been devout Jews. They may not even have been Christians. We don't know. And I believe they were able to bury Stephen just before the persecution started. But then the persecution begins. And he said they would go into Jerusalem, start in Jerusalem, go into Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And as we begin this next section of God's word, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. God's witnesses in Judea and Samaria. We've already been in the section of the book of Acts that talked about witnesses in Jerusalem. But now our focus changes. The book of Acts is organized in exactly that way, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The first section is God's witnesses in Jerusalem. The second section, God's witnesses in all Judea and Samaria. And finally, starting in, I guess, around 13, verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, God's witnesses in the ends of the earth. Before that, they make it to Antioch and Samaria, but regardless, this is what God's plan was all along. And so Saul became the defender of Judaism. He becomes a destroyer of the church, but that's not going to last. We're told he broke into Jewish homes and imprisoned those Jews that had become Christians. This sounds like something out of last century, out of the Holocaust. The Lord had called Saul to defend the truth, but he was determined to silence it, and there are so many that are. The Lord had allowed him to witness Stephen's faithful death and testimony. Still, he chose to ignore it. But brothers and sisters, Saul becomes a beautiful picture of how it is simply impossible to ignore the truth when the truth is spoken in love. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, that's our prayer. You've given us your truth. Now give us your love in great measure that we may speak the truth in love. There's simply no time to be careful about how we speak. There's simply no time in this dark culture to to sit back and and, 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 and develop an us-and-them mentality. We're here for a reason, Lord. We need your truth. We need your love. We need your power. We need to be full of the Holy Spirit as Stephen was. And we need to be willing to give it all. And we need to be willing to reach not just our Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria and the world around us. Not just our comfort zone, but to step outside where you're calling us to go, whether it be back to Latin America or India or Asia or or perhaps Appalachia. Wherever it is you're calling us to go, Lord, we make ourselves available to whatever it is you've called us to do and pray that you do this work by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.